The state capitals across the country are increasingly becoming the most relevant legislative bodies. Um, Sacramento passes two to three times as many bills as Washington, D.C. today. And in fact, Washington, D.C. is increasingly um, in gridlock because of the um, partisanal feuding that is going on. And so now state capitals are deciding many of the most important issues that impact the lives of Americans today, whether it is on health care, higher education, K through 12, prison and criminal justice reform, and previously gay marriage. All of these issues were actually being fought in the state capitals. And so it's incredibly important who we send um, to the state legislature. Hey, you're going to want to listen to this episode of Democracy in Color. We're joined by state Senate candidate Jane Kim, who talks about her journey from Chinatown organizer way back in the day when we met to her mission as a San Francisco supervisor to make college, community college in San Francisco, free to all residents. She's a real fighter. I mean, literally a fighter in Taekwondo. And she's working to make the city and Sacramento accountable and make good on its commitment to its people. So don't miss out. This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm Amy Allison. You can listen to episodes of this podcast on democracyincolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can also tweet at Democracy Color with questions, comments, and episode suggestions. We look forward to hearing from you. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and rate Democracy in Color on iTunes. participate in a politics of cynicism or do we participate in a politics of hope? But when we are together, we got power and we can make decisions. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. We want to register to become first class citizens. I'm talking to San Francisco Supervisor Jane Kem, and uh, Jane is running for state senate here in California. She's a civil rights attorney by trade. She represents San Francisco, some of the you know most challenging areas in San Francisco, like the Tenderloin, mm-hmm. on the Board of Supervisors. And she has the distinction of being the first Asian-American candidate to win in a non-historically Asian-American district. And so that, folks, is a new American majority. Jane Kim, thanks for joining us here on Democracy in Color. Thank you for having me, Amy. Uh, I did not know when we came to the studio, which, by the way, is a new studio that we're visiting in San Francisco, that it was right in your district here in, in, in the Tenderloin area. Yeah, this is um, the heart of the district that I represent. I actually live a block away from Women's Audio Mission. And this was one of the nonprofits that were at risk of leaving the city um, with the real estate boom. But they were able to work really closely with a nonprofit that we contract with, um, California Community Loan Fund, um, to help acquire this building so that this building can remain permanently um, for the community with a nonprofit mission. I can imagine that you are having to be very creative to keep non-corporate, non-tech businesses in the city right now. It's been a big part of our work is to keep the jobs, the nonprofit services, and the housing that can keep this city affordable um, into the long term and keep our city diverse. But it is an uphill battle. 
You know, I was just uh, thinking back. I mean, your career, you've been in politics how long now? I've now been in politics for 10 years. Wow. I'm running for my fifth election, which is really hard for me to even believe. And I started out as a youth community organizer. In Chinatown. In Chinatown. I started when in I, Chinatown, too. So, that's when yeah. I met you. Yeah. And I was a youth organizer for six years. And that was how I cut my teeth in local community organizing and local politics. What was that like? And what was your approach in organizing in Chinatown at the beginning of your career? It was a job that I loved. I loved working with young people. In fact, you know, when I was in high school, I didn't consider myself a leader. And um, or I should say, but I really cared about making a difference. For whatever reason, I wanted to serve my community. And so I had a few teachers in high school that that saw my interest and my passion, and they invested in me, and they put me in youth leadership programs in high school. Um, that grew my voice, where I learned how to speak out and being an advocate. And I started my public service um, then in high school. And the program I ran later as an organizer, as a young adult, was very similar um, to many of the programs that I had participated in. And it was an amazing experience. I worked with hundreds of public high school students here in San Francisco. And my role was really just to open the door for many young people to be able to make a difference in their neighborhood. And I realized if you give young people the tools, the education, the history of why their community is the way that it is, and how 60% of the housing stock in Chinatown ended up being single-room occupancy hotels, um, and why you know we have the fewest parks and the smallest parks in, in low-income neighborhoods, and then you give young people opportunities to make a difference, I've never seen a young person not walk through that door. And it is inspiring every single time. It is kids that uh, motivated you to get into politics, right? Yeah. I, I never thought I would run for elected office. I always worked on ballot initiatives, statewide and local. I was very tepid about working on candidate campaigns because, you know, I, like so many others, were skeptical about electoral politics. And I thought, you know, when I went to the ballot box, that I was always choosing between the lesser of two evils. Mm. I wasn't always inspired to vote for who I voted for. And so I never thought I was going to run for office to be part of that system. And it was during my time as a youth organizer um, that I got inspired to want to run for the Board of Education. Well, who was the first person? Did someone actually come to you and say, Jane, you should do this? (laughs) Or was it an idea that sort of came to you. It was definitely not my idea. I was at the time working on the Matt Gonzalez for Mayor campaign in 2003, and I was helping him do Asian American outreach and organizing with many of our youth leaders. And after his race, where he did phenomenally well um, with fewer resources, he really inspired a lot of people to get involved in local politics. Um, And after his loss, two weeks after his loss, he called me on Christmas And he said, Jane, you need to run for the school board. You actually work with public school students. And if you run, you'll be the only candidate that actually works with young people in the system. And I actually turned down, uh, it's not really an offer, (laughs) but the request. And then I had several friends get involved with the League of Pissed Off Voters in 2004. And it was this new national campaign to get young people, people of color, LGBT, women, um, register to vote and out to vote, but also to get local candidates to run in local races at the same time. And uh, I, I read this book that they had written called How to Get Stupid White Men Out of Office. And I was inspired to uh, run for office. And it wasn't really a book about 
you know, white men in office. It was really a book about how young people, people of color, LGBT folks, ran for local school board races, local city council races, water boards, and the differences that they were able to make in their community, whether they won or lost, actually. Wow. You know, I was thinking back, uh, you first ran 2004, correct? Mm -hmm. And you weren't successful that time. Mm -mm. So when you talk about winning, winning or losing, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is your relationship with success or failure in the electoral space. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for you? What do people need to know about that? And what kind of transformation is possible uh, just by virtue of running? Well, here's what I can say about my first race and losing. Uh, you know, politics was very new for me. And even though I had worked on many campaigns, I didn't actually really know what was entailed in politicking um, and running for office. Um, but we ran a great campaign. We were the only campaign really run and led by young people that were part of our public school system. And we did something that was unheard of, which was that our race dropped in close to 300 precincts that year. And we have about 550 precincts in San Francisco. And that was unheard of in a school board race um, to have such a a wide uh, field campaign. And so while we lost, we did really well and, you know, became more engaged to that process. And I uh, ran again two years later, and we came in first place out of a field of 15 candidates um, in 2006. And it was a huge victory. You know, there was 15 candidates that ran, and that year the San Francisco Chronicle probably profiled about eight to 10 of them. I wasn't one of the candidates profiled. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't uh, pick you as the the in candidate. No, I, it was the top three that won. I think they profiled eight to ten candidates, and I wasn't. I didn't even make that cut. And I remember on election night, newspapers calling me, and basically asking, "Who are you?" <laughs> and it was it was great for us because it was a big community win. Um, we were able to do it through gr grassroots mobilizing, and. The one thing that I got from that campaign that really surprised me is that I actually became even more committed to my principles and the base that I came from because that those were the people that helped me win. It was students. And so I felt even more obligated to make sure I spent my next four years on the school board fighting you know, for our young people. I just, uh, you're, you're recommending something that would be transformative for young people, which is free community college. And I I have to say, tell me more about that. Is that actually a possibility? Could we do that? It is a very real reality. We have been really struggling with the luxury market here in San Francisco in, over the last three years. What do you mean luxury market? You mean real estate market. It's, real estate. it's the most expensive real estate in the country. Is that it's, still right? It, it, it's, it's at least one of the most expensive real estate uh, markets in the country and the world. And... You know, our our housing market, our commercial real estate market is, is largely a free market economy. Yes, there are some regulations, um, but for the most part, there isn't that much that we can do to stop, you know, owners with a lot of money from coming in and purchasing buildings and housing. And so we thought, well, why don't we impose a slightly higher luxury housing tax on these sales for buildings and homes of $5 million and above? 10, 15, 25 million above. And let's see how much money we can generate for the city because in some ways we're taxing an inefficiency in the system. And we looked at the report and the controller's office came out and said that we would on average generate $44 million a year from this very small 
tax increase. It's a 0.25 increase for 5 to 25 million and then a 0.5 increase for 25 million and above. And we thought about why don't we invest this money back into making the city more affordable? Most of my work has been around affordable housing, and so that was actually the easy answer. Let's invest the money in affordable housing. But at the time, you know, um, candidates like Bernie Sanders and many others were talking about free higher education. And we started looking at the data, and we contacted uh, AFT 2121 and the Labor Council and student groups at City College. And we learned, one, that the average job in San Francisco available to a City College graduate with an associate's degree is on average $11,000 more than the same individual with only a high school diploma. Wow, that's pretty significant. It's significant. And so one way that we can make San Francisco more affordable is to actually invest in our residents' earning potential as well as creating more affordable housing. And so we looked at the dollar amounts, and to make City College free today would cost about $12.9 million. And so this is something we can easily fund through this luxury uh, real estate transfer tax that we have placed on the ballot for November. So um, we did pass the tax measure. It will be on the ballot on November 8th. We hope that everyone will support it. It has support now for, um, from 10 out of 11 members of the Board of Supervisors. And uh, the money that we will raise, we will dedicate to making City College free for all San Francisco residents and full-time workers in the city. See, when you say this, it's like, I'm really struck by, it's a big idea. Mm -hmm. When you broke it down so logically, it's totally doable. It's totally doable. We're in this situation now where the center is so far to the right that we don't – these ideas about like like free community college seem so radical. But it, uh, you make it seem like we can actually accomplish that in a, in a major city in the U.S. It felt like a really big idea in December when we started brainstorming. But when we looked at the numbers and we realized that we could do this, it became really exciting. In fact, I mean, this initiative is probably one of the most exciting proposals for my team. And I know I had mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, my team is all women of color that have all started their work um, in the community like I have. And this is one of our most important initiatives. And when this measure passes in November, and we're polling very well, we'll become the first city in the nation to make community college free for all of our residents without any type of income, age, or GPA prerequisite. And that is exciting. And we'll also be showing the rest of the state and the country that we can make this work. And, and we hope that enrollment goes up. We hope that we spend more than $13 million a year on making City College free again, because right. we hope that more, um, more people will feel like this is an opportunity for them. There's a second piece to this proposal, too, which is we do have some students that already qualify for a fee waiver at City College. It's called the Boggs Waiver. And if you are low income, um, you already get your tuition waived. But what we discovered um, in programs like in Oregon and Chicago, where they were making community college free again for low income households, is that um, low income students weren't actually signing up because books and other fees were so expensive for these very same students that tuition waiver wasn't enough. So if you are a full-time student at City College, and you already qualify for the fee waiver, we're going to give you a $1,000 educational stipend that you can use at the bookstore, that you can use for transportation. And we're also trying to expand it to child care. So we really want to remove the barriers to attending City College. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I think about, you mentioned Bernie Sanders and uh, he'd, he'd endorsed you. I, I was impressed that he went down ballot. And I think that uh, there's an appetite across the country for these kind of solutions. What do you make of... Uh, 
uh, our ability to solve some of the most pressing issues that face us just based on local mm-hmm. uh, policy, uh, local initiatives. Mm-hmm. You think we can get there? And if so, how? Yeah, I was really pleased that Senator Standards um, supported so many down-ballot candidates because he's right. We can't just win the White House alone. That's not how change happens. We need to win back Congress. We need to win back state legislatures and local school boards to really make a difference for our community. And I think actually um, his and now Secretary Clinton's proposal to make higher education affordable or free is the perfect example of that. They need to partner with state legislatures um, to make uh, public higher education free again. And I hope um, that when Hillary Clinton wins in November, that I'll be able to work with her from the state level to make UC, CSU, and, and community college free again for those that are low income and middle income. That will be a tremendous step forward for our country. But it does involve support at a variety of different levels. The second thing I I often tell people when they ask me why I'm running for state senate um, is that actually the state capitals across the country are increasingly becoming the most relevant legislative bodies. Um, Sacramento passes two to three times as many bills as Washington, D.C. today. And in fact, Washington, D.C. is increasingly um, in gridlock because of the um, partisanal feuding that is going on. And so now state capitals are deciding many of the most important issues that impact the lives of Americans today, whether it is on health care, higher education, K through 12, prison and criminal justice reform, and previously gay marriage. All of these issues were actually being fought in the state capitals. And so it's incredibly important who we send um, to the state legislature. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you about, uh, you grew up in New York, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that. How'd you get out to California? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I got into Stanford, and I was so excited. I accepted, and I had not visited. <laughs> Big change. <laughs> but I was really excited to come to California at the time. Um, growing up in New York was— Is it New York City that you were in? I grew up in New York City. Uh, it really shaped my, my politics and my thinking. Um, I grew up in a bankrupt city. And I grew up in a city where um, homelessness was beginning to emerge as an urban phenomenon in the, in the 1980s. And when I started, you know, taking the train and the bus by myself um, to school and back home, you know, as an 11-year-old, I was confronted on almost a weekly basis uh, from adults asking me for money. And I was just so struck by that. And two, you know, in New York City, I feel like race and class was very in your face and it was something that I was always confronted by um, and that I thought about. And so by the time I was in high school, I started getting involved in my local coalition for the homeless nonprofit. In fact, that was my first um, part-time job in high school. I was very lucky um, to do? be hired what, by nonprofit. What did you do with a nonprofit? When I was fourteen, I was initially, you know, xeroxing checks and doing administrative and you know secretarial work. And then slowly they grew my responsibilities. And then by the end, I was doing youth programming, and I also was a camp counselor for one of their summer programs where they took 
um, children of homeless families out to Bear Mountain for three weeks at a time. What do your parents make of this 14-year-old daughter of theirs working on a homeless? I mean, it's, it's an unusual choice for a, a young My person. parents who were immigrants did not really understand all the extracurricular activities I was engaged in. But, you know, also they weren't as actively engaged um, either. So in many ways, they gave me the freedom to do a lot. And, you know, later in life, I think they now see the value of the work that I was doing, but they certainly didn't push me to do community service. What do you think is the, um, the biggest solution? I mean, these, these issues, you represent an area um, in San Francisco right now that has a visible, I mean, it's just mm-hmm. homelessness all over the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a girl, you saw homelessness mm-hmm. in New York. What is going to solve this problem? Because in my hometown, Oakland, tent cities are popping up as the uh, as the property values go up mm-hmm. and rents go up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a phenomenon that's happening right before our eyes, and it doesn't seem like anyone has an idea about what to do about it. Well, it sounds simplistic, but the only solution to homelessness is housing. And no single city is going to be able to solve homelessness on its own. That's the honest truth. And it is a national issue. Homelessness is a national issue. Now, um, a good percentage of our homeless count does reside in the state of California. And so I've called upon Sacramento, along with many city councilmen in LA, asking the governor um, and the state to declare a statewide emergency on homelessness. We are seeing um, in cities across the country that actually families are the fastest growing segment. In fact, single working mothers with young children are the fastest growing segment of our homeless population today. And we are in a serious um, moral dilemma when working families can't afford to live where they work. That is a serious problem. Um, What I think is most striking about homelessness is that I think many of us have accepted it as a part of urban life. But as I mentioned before, homelessness didn't really emerge as an urban phenomenon until about the 1980s. And it happened to dovetail exactly with when President Reagan started cutting funding to HUD. Now, it wasn't just Reagan that continued through three presidential administrations, but we slowly cut HUD to 50% of its original budget from the 60s and 70s. And what I think is most amazing is that when you look at the public housing count in the 60s and 70s, there used to be more units available than people on the wait list. And when you talk to older social workers, they'll tell you, we used to be able to house families and individuals within a week because there was available housing. Now it takes years at the, I mean, HUD, that's at the federal level. Mm-hmm. Who is talking about or presenting a solution to increase HUD funding? It's mm-hmm. above our pay grade, but it <laughs> seems like there should be some champions. Do we have any right now? You know, I haven't been hearing the leadership on this issue that I would like to hear, but I think until the federal government starts making deep investments in housing again, we're not going to be able to make a crack on homelessness. Now, cities are going to do what they can. And I think that we have a role. And I think the state capital has a role too. But I think ultimately, the federal government will have to invest in housing again. Mm. I want to ask you also about the tech industry in San Francisco. I read uh, recently that Twitter was leasing out a lot, a subleasing a mm-hmm. lot of their space, mm-hmm. an indication that they're not doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, you were supportive of keeping Twitter in town. Mm-hmm. 
uh, you had um, a solution to keep them and have them locate uh, here uh, in uh, in San Francisco, stay in San Francisco. What's your assessment, both of Twitter and whether and what how they're doing, and of the tech industry in general? Um, and what's this, you know, in in, in terms of um, their ability to be uh, part of the community and solve some of the problems that we've been talking about? Yeah, this is a really tough question. I so I was the author of the mid market tax exclusion. I came into office at the depth of the recession in San Francisco, and when I ran, the number one issue was creating and keeping jobs in the city. And, you know, as a progressive, I'm philosophically against tax breaks. Um, and it was something I was very uncomfortable with. Um, and it took me a couple of months when I first got into office to really get my hands around it and work with it in a way that I thought we could make it work for businesses that want to stay in San Francisco, like Twitter, and and work for someone who came from a progressive perspective on tax policies. So what we did was, um, you know, initially what was asked for was a complete tax break um, on everything. And what we instead offered was this. You have to continue paying the taxes you're already paying, but for any net new jobs you create on this corridor that has the highest commercial vacancy rate in the city, um, over 30%, we'll give you a tax exclusion on any of those net new jobs that you create. Um, And you only get it for six years. And you know, you have to move into a building that has historically been vacant for a long time. So even along mid-market, we excluded buildings that didn't have historical rates of commercial vacancy. So for example, after Twitter moved in, Uber and Square moved in next door, same street, but they moved into a building that had not been historically vacant, so they didn't get the tax break, but they still um, moved and, and grew in the city. And that's overall a positive thing. We have now more revenue, we have more jobs, that's a positive for San Francisco. What also needs to happen is that we also need to be growing and supporting other industries as well that are creating other types of jobs. And and that's not what happened uniformly in San Francisco. So we started creating all these high-income jobs that started competing on the housing market. It's not the fault of tech, but tech was offering all these high-wage jobs and all these new residents were coming in and they could pay a lot more in rent than yeah. your average San Franciscan. And it's a regional issue now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing, you know, the pressure for people, you know, someone who works in tech and makes $150,000 a year, any other place would be rolling. But, right. you know, they're struggling to find and afford housing. There's people three and four in an apartment. Yeah. So I hear it's kind of like uh, people, when I do like Lyft Line or Uber Pool and I'm chatting with the person next to me and the back, they're, they're saying, you know, everyone thinks it's so great to be a tech worker, but it is, it's a challenge as well. So if it's hard for them, can you imagine people on the lower end of the economic scale? Yeah. It, you know, but the income gap is really a huge issue. We have one of the fastest growing income gap um, in the country. In fact, our own data from Human Services Agency says that our income gap is comparable to countries like Rwanda. And I represent the poorest residents of San Francisco. Wait, Rwanda? I just, it just I'm mm-hmm. a little slow. Yes. So it's it's huge. Mm-hmm. It's a huge gap. It's a huge income oh, gap. Wow. Oh. I represent the poorest residents of San Francisco. And as of a year and a half ago, I now also represent the wealthiest zip code. And it is very alarming, the difference in resources and opportunities between those who have the least and those who have the most. But what is also alarming is what's happening to those in the middle. Um, like I said, working class families can't afford a place to live. They're living in their cars. Um, they're living in tents. And then they're going to work the next day. In fact, I talked to public 
work workers who clean up after the encampments. And they say there are many encampments that um, people leave during the day because they're going to their job and they come back at night. So the stereotype that you know all these homeless folks are just criminals or don't want to work, that's just absolutely not true. They just can't afford housing. They just it's cannot just afford housing. Bottom line. Do you do you think you're you know you've proposed and been a longtime advocate of the fifteen dollar um, an hour minimum wage? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's gonna in in San Francisco as that's implemented help with that problem or it's it's necessary but not sufficient? Yeah. So our minimum wage has now risen to thirteen dollars an hour, and I'm really proud of helping to negotiate um, our minimum wage ordinance. It's just one of it's just one part of the solution is raising the income of our lowest paid workers. And, you know, by the way, minimum wage is really a women's issue. I mean, across the country, I want to say, you know, that close to two-thirds of minimum wage workers are women. Yeah. Women that are, you know, taking care of their families. And so it And is... I can imagine women of color are a significant portion oh, of that. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Right now, San Francisco has one of the highest minimum wages in the country, mm-hmm. but not the highest. Oregon and uh, I think Seattle is, is up there too. Our, I don't know Oregon's. I know our minimum wage proposal is stronger than Seattle's because we don't have any carve-outs. Um, Seattle did a bunch of carve-outs depending on if you're a small business, a large business, a chain store, this or that. You know, Every employer in San Francisco's minimum wage goes up. Um, so this year it's thirteen dollars. Next year it'll be fourteen, and then in twenty eighteen it'll be fifteen dollars an hour. And we do that without any tip credit or any health care credit either. So our minimum wage ordinance is different from most in the country. It is one of the strongest and most progressive minimum wage ordinances I've seen. I've been so impressed by how San Francisco, the Progressive Board, which used to have three, two, or three Green Party members on the Board of Supervisors. One. It was only one? Was it one? Yes, one at a time. One at a time. The school board, however, had two to three. It reminds me of, you know, when we we think about the Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, um, how big of a tent the Democratic Party currently is. Um, Bernie Sanders advocated $15 an hour. Hillary Clinton doesn't. Uh, we had pressure for Jerry Brown. He he was eventually supported a higher minimum wage, but it's it's been a challenge within the Democratic Party. H- how do you what do you make of progressives trying to push the Democratic Party more left versus um, kind of going outside the party in terms of third parties and trying to do their activism from there? Oh. I mean, you've had both sides because mm-hmm. you were both in the Green Party and the Democratic Party. Yeah, I I think both are important. I've always believed in a multi-party system. And so when I registered as a Green Party member in 2004, um, at the time, I saw a lot of hope for third-party politics here in San Francisco. You know, ultimately, that didn't pan out. um, And I was incredibly inspired by Obama's candidacy um, back in 2008. And so I re-registered as a Democrat. I was actually one of the first elected officials that endorsed Obama back in 2007. And I think you can go both ways. And right now, you know, the route that I have picked is to help push the Democratic Party to be more progressive. And I was very heartened by Senator Sanders' run. And I do think he ultimately moved the Democratic Party because he showed that there was actually a huge base of voters that want the Democratic Party to become more progressive. And I think in the past, the Democratic Party had always assumed that moving to the center was the way to win. But 
Senator Sanders' campaign showed that actually there's a tremendous base of very progressive voters that want to see the Democratic Party move to the left, that want to see the Democratic support the Democratic Party support $15 an hour, support free higher education. And and that's a good thing. What do you think are the possibilities in Sacramento for moving the party to the left? I mean, we've got the same in the national party we're talking about. Um, let's talk about the state Democratic Party. Uh, you know, uh, what are our possibilities there? Well, I think, first of all, it is really important for voters to become more cognizant of what is happening in Sacramento. Close to 50% of our state budget is K through 12 and prison spending, for example. And and that then it should be 50% of the state legislature's work, um, but it's not. And in fact, I would say most state legislators are probably not rewarded um, for working on issues like public education Why? Um, by their constituents. Why? Because the PAC is not there? Or I, you know, there is less money in education advocacy. But I also think it's such a huge systematic issue um, that I think, you know, even voters are overwhelmed by how to reform our K-12 through system. But I think something that is significant um, is looking at the California state budget. Actually, I always tell voters, you know, one of the most important things to look at is anyone's budget document because it's more than dollar signs and light items. It is actually a statement of who a city, a state, a nation, a school district cares about. Because the budget is a collection of all of our taxpayer dollars. It's an investment of our money back into our neighborhood. And so elected officials can determine how much of that money goes to maintaining trees, to police officers, in which neighborhoods, to reducing classroom size, how much do we pay teachers, um, how many parks do we open, how much do we maintain you know, recreational centers with. So our budget is one of the most important documents that any elected official votes on every year. California state budget, you know, has largely been the same over the last 30 years. About 40% um, is committed to K through 12, 30% to health and human services, and the final 30% goes to everything else, everything you can imagine, parks, highways, higher education, prison. I think what is most stark about the California state budget over the last 30 years to me is that there were two line items that changed most significantly. One was prison spending, no surprise. Um, It went from 3% of our state budget to 9% of our state budget. Over the last three years, we built 23 state prisons. There's only one other line item that gave, and that was higher education. So funding towards UC and CSU went from 18% of our budget to 12% of our budget. It went down exactly six percentage points. And we built one UC and three CSUs over the last three years. So you see where the state legislature has invested our money and what system they're investing for future young Californians to end up in. So you're in Sacramento, you're in the state Senate, and you could control how money's allocated in the budget. What, what would you do? Well, for one, um, I'm very interested in criminal justice, sentencing, and prison reform. I think that, and you know, Republicans are finally on board, and judges, DAs, police are saying, tough on crime, three strikes and you're out, death penalty, it's not working. Does it, does it, fe- it doesn't feel like uh, judges and prosecutors are on board. We just, they're you know, starting I'm, to come out. Yeah, I was going to say, sorry, on our, I didn't want to make thing. it sound like everyone. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, you know, every, every day it seems I'm reading another sad, terrible story. Uh, you know, the, the gentleman who, um, 
uh, who was held for four months uh, and was not charged and oh, accused right. of stealing some snack food. And, in New York City. And died in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, not eating. I, these are stories we hear over and over again. Horror stories. And, and there's so many of them. There's so many of them. You know, children that were sentencing for life sentence without parole. Um, I mean, that should be illegal. That should be illegal. Um, solitary Amnesty confinement. Amnesty International says that's, you know, that's Which the U.S. Unusual. Supreme Court is even suggesting that we take on as whether it's constitutional or not. There's so many aspects to our criminal justice system that I think is incredibly flawed and is actually exacerbating public safety issues in our state. And so um, I'm very interested as a progressive elected to work on these issues. And I think there's finally an opening. I don't want to say that everyone's on board, but I think there's finally an opening because some Republican leaders are talking about prison reform. You know, the state of Nebraska, a red state, overturned the death penalty last year. That was huge. And so um, I'm not saying that, you know, things are great, but I think there is finally some movement on this issue. And President Obama has also indicated um, how important these types of reforms are at the federal level. But the vast majority of inmates are in state prisons. They are not in federal prisons. Yeah, and we look at uh, California. You know, the Democrats have a majority in the state legislature. Mm-hmm. So, and there was a supermajority mm-hmm. at one point, mm-hmm. um, delivered in large part because uh, online voter registration brought in new American majority younger voters and voters of color who tend to vote more Democratic. So they put them in. And so um, uh, I think many people are expressing extreme dissatisfaction with the lack of leadership on the criminal justice reform issue in Sacramento. We what? want our leaders to take this issue on and do something about this, the things you're talking about. Yeah. Um, what we have been seeing, though, is an increasing number of business-friendly Democrats in Sacramento. And one of the reasons why I'm running is because I do think that the Bay Area and San Francisco in particular should be the last district that sends another moderate business-friendly Democrat to the state legislature. We have many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, in California. And so I do think it's important to turn the tide. And we need more people of color and we need more women, progressive women to run. You know, women only make up about, you know, a quarter of the state legislature today in Sacramento. We have less women today um, in Sacramento than we did, you know, 15 years ago. And so we need to work on those issues. And there's a lot that happens at the state level. And for example, on women's issue, the Women Caucus in Sacramento is fighting for increased investment in child care and early childhood education, um, and they're losing on those issues. Um, but a specific bill that I was stunned by was they're trying to pass legislation that will allow women to get 12 months of birth control. Because currently, women can only get one to three months at a time. And for the average woman that is out there, you know, everyone is busy. You can imagine it's so hard to go to Walgreens or your pharmacist every month and get your prescription on time. And there's all these studies that show that if you have 12 months worth of birth control, your likelihood of getting pregnant, you know, is significantly lower than if you have a monthly or a three-month prescription. But yet these are the fights that we're having in Sacramento. It doesn't even – it's nonsensical <laughs> unless it makes more money for somebody. Well, um, the industry is certainly fighting the legislation, so there is opposition to it. And we are really dependent on a small group of women that understand why this issue matters. Um, to fight for it. In Sacramento, who would you work with 
Uh, there's business-friendly Democrats, and then there's the rest of them who want to actually get some stuff done. Yeah, I I, I really love the work that um, Senator Holly Mitchell and Senator Hannah Beth Jackson are doing, um, both on behalf of low-income communities, communities of color, but also women. And I would be very excited to work with the two of them. Yeah, to make things happen. You know, I have to I have to admit, I saw this amazing video that showed you doing some Taekwondo. It was like a Jane Kim fight. Uh, I'd never seen a campaign commercial like that. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, I'm sure it's on your, is it on your website? It's on my website. It's on YouTube and Facebook. What the heck? You've been studying Taekwondo for a long time? Yeah, I, I started studying Taekwondo when I was 14 years old. Uh, my parents enrolled me because I wanted to learn some type of self-defense growing up as a young girl in a city. And I originally took it for practical reasons, but I fell in love with it. And I'm not an athletic person, so I was shocked that I enjoyed it so much. And I started doing it every day. I took my training very seriously. I eventually got my black belt before I graduated high school. And I did continue training um, you know, through my early adult years here in San Francisco as well. Uh, I, I never thought I would use it in this career, <laughs> however. <laughs> but I have to tell you, you know, it was my consultant's idea. And he'll tease me about it because I actually said no several times to him when he asked me to do Taekwondo for a political ad. And um, I finally acquiesced. And, you know, we knew that we were going to have less money and less resources in this campaign. We knew that my opponent would outspend me two to one, three to one. And so we needed to be different. And we really need to catch people's attention. And also, we wanted to talk about my work fighting for the city, fighting for the most affordable housing of any member of the Board of Supervisors, fighting to make community college free again, um, fighting to raise the minimum wage. And so that was the theme of the ad. Were you, what, what was the move you were doing on the bag who were kind of? It was, uh, it was a, a flying roundhouse kick. That was awesome. Thank you. Was, I'm so glad I could still do it. <laughs> I tell you, once you once you once you pass 40, I don't know if the leg goes up that way, but it's oh my god, it was amazing, so amazing. What's your greatest hope? Um, you know, for the city of San Francisco, for the people in the community. Um, if you could look at the times, you know, people are just desperate for some hope right now. Um, Trump and the forces that are creating a pall and a sense of you know, that, that hatred is out and, um, you know, people are just really wanting connection. Mm-hmm. What's your greatest hope? Oh, my gosh. My greatest hope, you know, is is to fight for a more equitable city, more equitable state, a more equitable country. Um, but we do have small victories. And, of course, there are like ones um, winning the minimum wage um, increase to $15 an hour across the state of California is a huge victory. I talked about prison reform. But, um, you know, last year, um, working with Supervisor David Campos, um, the two of us were able to lead a fight to prevent the building of a new jail in San Francisco. When we started working on the issue three years ago, we were the only two members of the board that opposed the rebuilding of a jail in my district. Um, By the time December came, when we won an $80 million state grant to build a new prison, and through the amazing organizing of largely women, um, who raise criminal justice and social issues with many of my colleagues, um, we were able to f- be one of the first cities probably in the state to ever turn down funding from Sacramento to build a new prison. And we were able to do this with really good data collection. We looked at who was in our county jails, and we saw that um, close to 30 to 40% of our inmates suffered from severe mental health illnesses. 
about another third that suffered from substance abuse. And the vast majority of folks in our county prison were poor and underhoused or homeless. And it's clear that jails and prisons have become our answer to mental health, to substance abuse, to poverty. If we know who's in our prisons, let's instead build institutions that address these issues. So we were able to successfully turn down the grant, and we're now asking the state to give us $80 million to instead build um, a mental health component um, to our criminal justice system and, and not put folks that are already suffering in jail. But I have to say one of the hardest visits I've done as a supervisor was visiting our county jail at the Hall of Justice. I was shocked by what I saw. First of all, I recognized folks that were um, in our jails. But two, you just saw people that were so sick and so traumatized um, being in prison and that they needed treatment and that prison was only further traumatizing, you know, whatever illness that they had already. And I cried a lot that day because, you know, <laughs> I, I knew I was a part of the system, that I was funding this very system that was locking up people who were so sick. And, uh, you know, those are the moments when you realize that you have to fight to change the system because you're a part of it. And so that's why I'm so passionate about making sure that we are, we're actually solving the issue. And um, in this case, it's not a public safety issue. We have just vastly under-resourced treatment um, for those that have the least in our society. And then we lock them up when um, they don't have the strength to overcome, I think, very difficult obstacles in their life. And so, you know, part of that, again, is how do we invest our public dollars? You know, do we invest in prisons or do we invest in, in real treatment? I'm really struck by the fact that it's not easy. It's probably not easy um, to do the work that you're doing every day. It's hard. I think one of the hardest things is what I said is when you realize that you're actually a part of the system, right, the system that you are fighting. Um, in fact, you know, when I was on the school board, it was very hard to accept the fact that we were part of a system that was disproportionately impacting African-American students, Latino students, Pacific Islander students, um, and that actually our student outcome was one of the top factors in our student outcome and achievement was race, not class, not neighborhood, but it was race. And that is the definition of racism. You know, when race is the clear factor that divides on who will succeed and who will fail. And when you go into the system, you go in with the hopes of changing it, of course, and it's a very slow process. But while you're there, you also know that you're a part of it. And so um, it is a struggle, I think, for many of us who are progressives and are activists um, to really struggle within a system that we know um, isn't right. Jane Kim, I want to see you in Sacramento. I want to see you in Sacramento this November. <laughs> well, it would be January of next. But I just thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Color and sharing your stories. Thank really you. appreciate you. Democracy in Color is a project of PowerPack Plus. This episode was recorded at Women's Audio Mission in San Francisco and produced by Lulu Matute with technical support from Kelly Coyne. A very special thanks to our guest, the stylish, intelligent, and inspirational San Francisco Supervisor Jane Kim, who's also running for state senate. Find out more about her campaign at janekim.org. You can listen to future episodes on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. If you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. 
Tell a friend, a colleague, or neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. So until next time, thanks for joining us.